Now, as far as I can tell, this is the earliest jewelry found with a picture of Jesus on it. And what's really interesting to me is how Jesus is portrayed on this ring. Uh, is he depicted on the cross like a Catholic crucifixion? Is he Jesus rising from the grave? Was it Jesus at his second coming, robed in glory? No. It's Jesus as the good shepherd. I don't know if you can see this, zoomed in a little bit. It's Jesus carrying a ram on his shoulders, which was a symbol of Jesus as he said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for his sheep. And it just struck me, especially after we talked last week about that passage in Luke 12:32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father has been pleased to give you his kingdom. How that idea of Jesus being our shepherd has brought comfort to Christians for almost 2,000 years. Well, I'm 2,000 years, but I'm talking about that ring. It's almost 2,000 years old. And, and David, even 1,000 years before Jesus, in Psalm 23, which we'll look at, he also found wonder and comfort in this idea that the Lord is my shepherd. Now, so we're going to look at that. Now, unfortunately, when we come to this idea of a shepherd motif, though, there's a bit of a challenge. For one, Psalm 23 is very familiar. And sometimes the things we're most familiar with, we just kind of gloss over and don't pay attention to sometimes, right? And the second thing is that we are pretty far removed from the kind of pastoral lifestyle that would give context to some of the shepherd imagery, right? I would guess that none of us here has ever been a shepherd. Probably none of us here has ever met a shepherd, or known one at least. So we're going to turn to this psalm because it can be a great help in bringing us this kind of peace and rest that God desires for us once we pay attention to it and look at it a little more deeply. So let's pray and ask God to guide our thoughts. Father, help us to look at this with new eyes. We have heard this psalm so many times. I have, I have recited it so many times at gravesides and in other contexts. But would you help us to look at it with new eyes? Would you fill us with wonder that you, as the song has said, had taken upon yourself the charge of being our protector and our provider. Thank you, Father. Open our eyes to see what you would want us to hear from your word. Thank you. Amen. All right, so we're going to try to look at this with new eyes and think about how wonderful this statement is. Imagine if you've never heard it before and you just now came to realize that the great God, the creator of all things, says that he is your shepherd. The Lord of the universe has taken upon himself the role of, the, of being the shepherd of your soul. That's an amazing thought. Now, David was a shepherd. He, know that, he knew that sheep did, just didn't take care of themselves. Uh, he, they require more than any other class of livestock, I'm told, endless attention and meticulous care. And so here, though, he's not speaking as a shepherd, but from the background of the shepherd, he's speaking as one of the sheep. And he speaks with this strong sense of wonder devotion and admiration, almost as if he's saying, can you imagine, the Lord is my shepherd. After all, he knew from first-hand experience that the lot of any particular sheep in life was mainly determined on the type of man who owned it. So, let's look at this and what we'll take away. Now, one of the things, as I said, that may challenge our understanding of this a little bit 
as we come into the psalm, is when we think of a shepherd, we may often think of something like this. We see the green fields, we see the water, we can uh, see the lamb and the, you know, they've got this beautiful field of pastures and we think of the shepherd as, you know, something like this. And that's not really how it happened or what it looked like in Israel 3,000 years ago or even today. In fact, I was able to track down some pictures of uh, Palestinian shepherds from about a century or a century and a half ago, kind of give you an idea of what that land looks like, how they process the sheep. I'll, I'll show you some modern pictures as well. One of the cool things about shepherd, shepherding, it hasn't changed that much. You know, the animals are still sheep, the terrain is still the terrain, still, you still have to meet their basic needs in a basic way. So I thought these were kind of interesting. And you can see what kind of terrain you're, you're often dealing with here. I, I think these were published in National Geographic or something. I don't, couldn't quite track it down. I don't know if you can even see the sheep here. And here you have the shepherd. And I think there's another shepherd and a lot of sheep going through this ravine, being led to water. And these are some more modern pictures that were uh, taken by a photographer. Of, and basically this is the area near where David would have been, in the area of Palestine. This uh, ewe is giving birth. Now, what do you notice that's different in this series of pictures than the ones I showed at first? Yeah. Rocky. There's not much green field, not much water around, right? It's not that there weren't any green fields or there wasn't any water in Israel, but it's a lot different than our climate here. In fact, it's more like say, New Mexico, something like that. And um, <clears throat> so when we come into this then, we'll, let's, I'll come back to this idea. What does it mean then, with this kind of background in mind, to talk about that he provides for us and makes us lie down in green fields? Well, first, it says he provides for us. The God himself provides for us. And that's behind that well-known phrase, I, I shall not want. Want meaning the sense of lacking something, right? We often want things that God doesn't, put upon himself to give us. But the idea of wanting away or wasting away says that is what God will deliver me from. It's a bold claim that God will provide all of my true needs. Is it true? Well, not if we understand our deepest need to be something like our present desire, because those two things are not going to align, or at least very rarely. David kind of goes in to expand upon what this means then, and, and, and watch how he develops this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul or my life. And again, these words are so familiar to us, we may not catch their meaning. Imagine you're in this kind of land as a shepherd, or as a sheep in this case, and what would that mean to you? Well, let's get a little bit of background. Israel does not have four seasons like we do, at least most of Israel does not. It has two seasons, the rainy season and the dry season. And the rainy season starts uh, about early November, and, and it rains a lot during the rainy season. Um, that's why it's called the rainy season, right? In fact, it doesn't rain as much as it does here. Before them, it rains a lot during, it starts in, in November. And then that, uh, that'll taper off a little bit, and then you'll have the latter rains that are going to come during the springtime, our springtime, uh, which would be basically March and the first part of April. And then by the second part of April, the rains have mostly stopped, and the land begins to change. So during that first part of the year, you do have green fields like this. So this is what a shepherd would look like today in that land. 
But then by the time you get to late April, early May, the land begins to look more like this. And then as further you get in the summer, it's, it's almost completely brown and bare of, of the green pastures. And the, the, the water in the ravines have stopped flowing. So the pools dry up. And, and to find green pasture and water is a great challenge. So what do you have to do? You have to go here. So these are the hills around the middle part of Israel where David would have been shepherding. Now, these aren't mountains by any sense. But you've got this, you know, you, when you've got the weather system come off the Mediterranean and towards Israel, it's going to be these hills or mountains that are going to catch that rain the most. And so you have to go to the hills as the summer progresses to find any sort of nourishment for the sheep. And, uh, and so when he talks about he leads me besides green pastures and quiet waters, it's not just that those are always there around. Some of those they had to deliberately build. They had to create a pasture with and clear it of, of stones and, and roots to create a green field. And other times they had to dig a well that they could pour water into for a pool. And other times when you couldn't do those things anymore and, the, and you had to take them into the high country. So the idea that he provides is that God leads, he, he gives us provision that I could not find in my own. And he leads me to the right places. One of those aspects, it says, he leads me to quiet waters. Notice, he says, neither, the, the clue to the, where the water can be found lies not with the sheep, but with whom? The shepherd, right? The shepherd knows the terrain that the, that the sheep do not. It is he who knows where the best drinking places are. In fact, as I said, many times it's he or his family that have worked to dig that well and provide that watering place. Other times, he's leading them to a mountain stream uh, or a ravine. Some years ago, a shepherd named Philip Keller published a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Have you, have you read that? It's a good book. You can buy it for five bucks on Amazon Kindle. Great, great buy. Um, he writes this. When sheep are thirsty, they become restless and set out in search of water. If not led to the good water supplies of clean, pure water, they will end up drinking from the polluted potholes where they pick up such internal parasites as nematoids, liver flukes, and other germs. They remind me very much of a bunch of sheep I watched one day that were, be that were being led down to a magnificent mountain stream. The snow-fed waters were flowing pure and clear and crystal clean between lovely banks of trees. But on the way, several stubborn ewes and their lambs stopped instead to drink from small, dirty, muddy pools beside the trail. The water was filthy and polluted not only with the churned-up mud from the passing sheep, but also with their manure and urine. Still, these stubborn sheep were quite sure it was the best drink obtainable. The water itself was filthy and unfit for them, much more it would distress them because it, it was contaminated with all kinds of germs and parasites that would trouble them later. Now, doesn't that kind of remind us of ourselves sometimes when God has given us these promises and yet we, we seek to meet our desires and our needs in ways that he has not given to us. In fact, sometimes in ways that he's told us, he's warned us off from. And it's we who are going to suffer that. The Father is the one who desires to lead us to those pure waters. So he, he provides for us. But notice in the midst of this, there's also this, this theme. He provides for us, 
as he guides us. He guides me in the right path. The old King James, the path of righteousness, uh, which is a great phrase, but maybe it doesn't convey the idea. Sheep have to travel, and the shepherd has to guide them on specific paths. Why do they have to travel? Well, because a great danger is of overgrazing a particular sheep yard or, or, or pasture. And so, depending on the size of the flock and the, how good the pasture is, they will have to lead uh, that from one pasture to another, perhaps on a weekly basis, uh, perhaps two weeks or whatever. But the, the sheep have to be moved. But more to the point, especially in, in David's time and place, remember how we talked about how the, the dry season would just choke out all the life of the grass and dry up all the water in the lower places? So where do you have to go? Well, the shepherd has to guide them to the highlands. The shepherd has to guide them. He takes them to higher ground. David knew this. He knew it firsthand. Do you remember in the story in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 7, um, when David is, is, you know, he's going to be anointed by Saul, I'm sorry, Samuel. Samuel comes to Bethlehem, and he comes to Jesse's house, David's father, and uh, says, bring all the boys in. And, and David's not there. Why? Well, he, he wasn't on the family compound or ranch at the time because he was up in the hills, and they had to go send for him. He was up in the hills with the sheep. David knew this progression, that he had to lead the sheep to a certain place where they couldn't go even if they wanted to, but they're probably not going to want to uh, in the first place, even though it's their, their great need. Philip Keller again writes, In the Christian life, we often speak of wanting to move on to higher ground with God how we long to live upon the lowlands of life. We want to get beyond the common crowd, to enter a more intimate walk with God. We speak of mountaintop experiences, and we envy those who have ascended the heights and entered into this more sublime sort of life. Often we get the erroneous idea about how this takes place. It's as though we imagine we could be airlifted into higher ground. But on the rough trail of Christian life, this is not so. As with ordinary sheep management, so with God's people, one only gains higher ground by climbing up the valleys. Every mountain has its valleys. Its sides are scarred by deep ravines and gulches and draws, and the best route to the top is always along these valleys. Any sheepman familiar with the high country knows this. He leads his flock gently but persistently up the paths that wind through the dark valleys. So when David begins talking about this, that you... You guide me in the right path. And then he goes right into, even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death. And by the way, your translations are going to differ in that because the Hebrew phrase could mean either one. Uh, either one. But the idea is something very, very dark and threatening. Now, what can be threatening about a valley? Well, <clears throat> in Israel's time, you can see the the kind of ravines here that would have to go through. All right. Let me know when you got that, Becky. Thank you. There we go. All right. You can see the kind of ravines you would have to go through here. And... Uh, this is not always, this is not always a, a pleasant place you want to go through. In fact, it rarely is. You can see what kind of footing you're going to have here, right? This is not the nice, comfortable, 
low valley that you might see in the Midwest. This is a ravine, basically. This is what David was talking about. You can see what kind of footing you're going to have, but, but more to the point, you can see why it would be called dark. I mean, right here in this picture, it's not. But you can imagine as the sun sets a certain, begins to go to certain angles, there's going to be a lot of, of dark along the sides in the shade. Now, that's actually, in a sense, where you need to be. That will protect you from the heat of the day. That's probably also in the shade of, of the canyon. It's the only place you're going to find water or maybe some, some grass uh, during the height of the summer. But in those shadows, in that darkness, you're also going to find that's where the predators are going to hide. So it's in the, within the cover of the ravine or the valley in the darkness. You would find all kinds of predators. That's what he means, even though I walk through the dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid. Why? Because you're with me. Because you're with me. A sheep has no natural protection against a predator like, like a coyote or cougar or, or a lion that might come. And they did have lions in the Middle East at this time, by the way. No, they had no natural protection against this. All they could do is run, but... How are you going to run in something like this, right? This is not a place where you want it to be as a sheep. And remember the point here. God wants to lead us to higher ground for our good. For our good. We'd rather stay in the valley, even as we watch the grass dry up, probably. Even if we wanted to go to higher ground, how would we know the way? But God wants to lead us there, and the way he does that is going to be through what seemingly is a dark and dangerous time, a time of, of discomfort or even suffering. And yet he does this out of love for us. I, uh, in this picture here, the Palestinian shepherds, you can see them doing the same thing. And you see this man back here holding up. I assume that's probably a ewe uh, with, with lamb. I was going to say with child, but with lamb in, in this case. And this is a, a modern shepherd. And he, he's using his hook or his staff to push those <laughs> stubborn sheep up the mountain, uh, mountain to, get, to get to where they need to be. In fact, as I was thinking about this, you know, this, this kind of reminds me of a meme theme I've seen a little bit. Something like this. The Lord is my shepherd. How it started, how it's going. <laughs> right? Because we want this, but the problem is, okay, we're not so little anymore. And more to the point, God's design for us may not be what we think is this nice, cozy, comfort relationship, but pushing us up to where we need to be, but maybe we don't want to go. He leads me up the mountainsides, through the valleys, to the highlands for my own good. In the midst of this, I do have protection, even as a sheep. And the protection is the shepherd, Right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What are a rod and staff? Well, a rod would basically be a club. It might be a little bit longer, but it could be thrown or you could beat an animal with it. And David said that he had killed both a lion and a bear uh, defending the sheep, probably using a club. A staff would be used not for, uh, to beat an animal or something like that, but rather to guide the sheep, protect the sheep. The sheep's starting to get a little bit close, too close to the, to the edge, Use the, the shepherd's crook to pull them back. Um, she starts to stick his nose in water where he's going to get disease, you pull it back. Or sometimes you would use, a, use it to help stabilize the animal so you could examine it for its own good. 
And, and that's the idea that he has in mind here. So you prepare a table for me in the presence of my, or you, you provide me with this, and then, and then he begins shifting the metaphor on us. All right. And, and uh, we're, th- we're thinking sheep, 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 sheep. And then he begins to shift the metaphor. It says, you provide a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So now he's imagining himself or God as the host or a friend who has brought David or any of us, if we're in the relationship with God, into his home. You provide a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's he mean? I'm not exactly sure, but I think what he has in mind is among all the, the forces of, of evil and ill will in this world, spiritual forces, the evil one, enemy, human enemies, but also the discomfort and, and ravages of this life, God has still provided in the midst of that. If you go back to the valley metaphor, we have to go through the valleys. But he is with us. He is with us. He lays down his life for the sheep. So here, the idea is that he brings us into his own home and he sets a table before us. doesn't matter if there are enemy forces who threaten us. He's got all that handled. You anoint my head with oil. So in the Middle East, if you had a guest who came into your house, and especially if they were an honored guest, you would take a little vial of olive oil and you would pour it over their, their head very often. And that was a, as a mark of a friendship. Um, and then uh, you, my cup overflows. That's the idea of the, the cup the host would offer to the guest, overflowing with the wine. There was always enough. There was always plenty. And then finally, he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I love this one. I love this because I hear its New Testament echo in John chapter 14, maybe in one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, where Jesus, on the night he was going to be betrayed and go to the cross, tells his disciples, trust in God. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's home are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. That's the idea. And that's why David had, I think, to, to shift from the sheep metaphor. You don't bring the sheep into your house. You don't make a room for your sheep. But you might for a friend might for a friend that you loved dearly. That's what God has done for you and I. This is the promise. It's not that we're not going to go through the valley. It's not that we're not going to have enemies and threatening forces around us. It's that at the end of our journey, our journey is not ended, but rather that we have a place with the Father and with Jesus forever. I will dwell in Yahweh's house, the house of the Lord, forever. So this is the promise. God himself has laid upon himself the charge of being our protector and provider. More than that, the host that brings us into our house. So last thing I want to ask or talk about is this. It's a question. Why don't we live in this kind of trust and this kind of peace more fully and more consistently? And I think there are three reasons we're going to end on this note. First, we don't keep our eye on the shepherd. Second, we don't keep our eye on the shepherd. Third, I'm going to floor you with this one. We don't keep our eye on the shepherd. 
So the way forward is to keep our eye upon the shepherd. See, sometimes, here's where I'm going with this. Our eyes are off to the sides, scanning the ravines, trying to figure out where any harm to us might come from. We do that, don't we? We think ahead to all the worst-case scenarios that might happen. Now, it would be funny, really, a sheep thinking it can defend itself against a wolf or a lion in a, in a ravine when all it has to do is stay close to the shepherd. But it robs us of peace. It robs us of joy. It robs us of rest. Sometimes we, uh, we look to ourselves instead of the shepherd and we want to provide for our own needs and desires by our own wits and our own work, right? We do have a legitimate need for security and significance. And we can try to meet those needs ourselves. Or we can look to the shepherd. Sometimes we may look to the other sheep and see how they're doing. See what they think of us. See how we measure up or seem to measure up. Philip Keller writes this. In every animal society, there is an established order of dominance or status within the group. In a pen full of chickens, it's called the pecking order. With cattle, it's called the horning order. Among sheep, it's called the budding order. Generally, an arrogant, cunning, or domineering old ewe will be the boss of any bunch of sheep. She maintains her position of prestige by budding and driving other ewes or lambs away from the best grazing or favorite bedgrounds. Succeeding her in precise order, the other sheep will all establish and maintain their exact position in the flock by using the same tactics of budding and thrusting at those below and around them. Because of this rivalry, tension, and competition for status and self-assertion, there is friction in the flock, and the sheep cannot rest and lie down in peace. This continuous conflict and jealousy within the flock can be <clears throat> a most detrimental thing. The sheep become edgy and tense and discontented and restless. They lose weight, become irritable. But the one point that always interested me very much was that whenever I came into view and my presence attracted their attention, the sheep quickly forgot their foolish rivalries and stopped their fighting. The sheep's presence made all the difference in their behavior. It was the sheep's shepherd's presence, I'm sorry, that made all the difference, that put an end to all rivalry. And in our human relationships, he goes on, when we become acutely aware of being in the presence of Christ, our foolish, selfish snobbery will, and rivalry will end. It's the humble heart walking quietly and contently in the close and inti intimate companionship of Christ that is at rest and can relax, simply glad to lie down and let the world go by. It's good and proper to remind ourselves that in the end it is he who will decide and judge what my status really is. After all, it is his estimation of me that is of consequence. Any human measurement at best is bound to be petty, unpredictable, unreliable, and far from final. To be thus close to him, conscious of his abiding presence, made real in my mind, emotions, and will by the indwelling gracious spirit is to be set free from fear of my fellow man and whatever he or she might think of me. When my eyes are on my master, they are not on those around me. This is the place of peace. Good words from that man. Last, you know, even in our relationship with God, we may be looking more at ourselves than at him. What I mean by this is that um, 
we tend to operate on a transactional view of God. We do something for him, and, and we look for him to do something for us. That's what we're used to in this world, right? Everything from a garage sale to a job is kind of this way. When I go into Maine and Madison, and I, I go in there, and there's a woman there who will give me a cup of coffee from behind the bar. Does she do that because I'm so devilishly handsome? Probably. But also because I put my card in the machine, and the money is transferred from my account into Maine and Madison's account, and I get, there's a transaction involved here is what I'm getting at. And that's how life works most of the time. Not all the time. You see a mother with a newborn child, that's not a transactional thing. And Jesus himself uses that imagery. God himself says, even if a mother could forget her newborn child, which isn't going to happen, but even if she could, I won't forget you. And that's the idea, that we have to move away from this transactional view of God. We have to leave behind the idea that I have to be good enough, or there has to be something special about me in order for God to really be this kind of shepherd to me. Do you see that anywhere in this psalm, though? Is you see even a hint that somewhere we have to earn his friendship or his protection, his provision, that he'll kick us out of the house if we're not good enough? No. The whole emphasis of the psalm is on God's grace. Now, it's true. We can reject his guidance. We can seek to meet our own needs in our own ways. It's true that we'll probably suffer in that way. But that's a world different than being kicked out of the flock or the home. Grace means it's about his goodness, not our performance. And there's a phrase in the middle of that psalm that can help us out if we're troubled by this thought that I, I'm not good enough or this, you know, I haven't earned his protection and his help at this intimate of level. That little phrase that we skipped over, for his namesake. For his namesake. What is God's goal in protecting and providing for us? Well, love, obviously. But also this idea that God is doing all this also to protect his name, for his namesake. This does not mean that he needs our approval. The Lord made us all things. He, he doesn't need our approval any more than we need our dog's approval for our taste in literature, okay? That's not what it's about. The idea being, rather, that he is being consistent to his name, that is his character, in what he does. And also the idea that because he wants his name to be regarded in a certain way so that others can be drawn into the flock under the, the tutelage of the shepherd to be cared for and protected by him. God is saying, I have staked my own name on your well-being. I want to show you who I really am. I want to act in accord with my nature. It's about my name and not your performance. All right, final questions as we end here. First, is there some area of your, of your life where you know you're drinking from polluted waters, polluted puddles, instead of waiting for the shepherd to guide you to the quiet waters? Maybe it would be a good day to talk to him about that. Have your eyes been too much on the sides of the ravine, worrying about the potential dangers of life that might threaten you instead of on the shepherd beside you? Have your eyes been on yourself and your performance too much and not enough on his love and promises? Only by keeping the our eyes on the shepherd will we value him like that precious ring on our hand. Only by keeping our eyes on him will we find rest and peace.